ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Will Page. He's the former chief economist of Spotify and the author of a great new book, Tarzan Economics, Eight Principles for Pivoting Through Disruption. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Very well honored to be on your show. <laughs> I was introduced to you about two years ago through Hannah Karp, the editor of Billboard magazine, who knew that my geeky heart would enjoy your take on everything. And she was absolutely right. You've written this great book about how to pivot in business and use the music industry as a lens through which to view things. And despite having this scary economist job title, you've written an amazingly accessible readable, enjoyable book. And in it, you outline eight principles that people should take into account as they face disruption. We don't have enough time to cover them all. So I'm going to be cherry picking things. But first, let's set the stage with your title, Tarzan Economics. Why Tarzan? What does it mean? It's a term that was coined by a technologist called Jim Griffin. I actually overheard it in a bar in southern Norway, and I put it down to Norwegian bar prices, which for any Brit or American are extortionate, <laughs> even any econometric formula. It's an outlier that I stayed sober enough the next morning to write it down and say, one day, one day, if I ever write that book, I'm going <laughs> to use that. <laughs> And uh, the concept of Tarzan economics was given to me as a way of visualizing the predicament music was in back then. And I think everybody else is in now. So it really works as a book title. It's this, this visualization of holding onto the old vine of doing business, a withering old vine that's holding above the jungle floor, that's paying the bills, that's going to make you to next quarter's earnings call, and being reluctant to let go of that old way of doing business and grab onto a new vine through a fear of the unknown. Mm-hmm. I think about music as having a 20-year head start dealing with disruption. We spent the first 10 years holding on to that old vine, hoping people were going to go back to buying CDs that broke your fingernails when you tried to open them. <laughs> and then for $15, by the way, and then reaching out to the new vine in the second 10 years, that two-decade story of disruption. In that second 10 years, we embraced streaming and let go of transactions and set off in a recovery that's to the envy of everyone else. So Whenever I say it, people start waving their hands in the air. And that's a really good sign that you've got a big title. What was it about the music industry that made them the canary in the coal mine? Was there anything that made it that way? Absolutely. I go headfirst into this in the first chapter of the book, which is, it's the nature of the good that's being sold. It really, really is. I mean, it comes down to this fundamental point of what are you actually selling? And I propose a very simple trade-off. Um, to understand the nature of what's being sold. In the case of music, a CD was scarce. There's one last copy on the shelf of Tower Records, and if Gabriella gets it, it means I can't. Mm. And it's affordable with a big, nasty security guard by the door forcing you to pay. Right. So it's a private good. Now, if you remove scarcity, which is what digitization does, and you remove excludability, which is what piracy does, you end up with what's called a public good, and public goods fail because no one's willing to pay for it. So... I was able to use a simple two-by-two two matrix, you know, a foundation of economics to just introduce 
Yes, there was a security guard and there's a physical product. Now there's no security guard and it's a digital product. What changes? Mm. I introduced that to the business in 2006 as a way of saying something's got to change here because the good has changed. Mm. And the concept of a toll good where you pay a toll, which makes it excludable up until a point for content that's not scarce. Mm. You know, there's... 30 million tracks on iTunes at the time. If we downloaded them all today, they'll still be there tomorrow. There is no scarcity. One thing you've got to accept is digitization removes scarcity. That toll could work. And that was three years ahead of, you know, when Spotify finally launched across Europe. But it's the same concept. You know, digital content is not scarce. Impose a toll and people will pay to cross that bridge. They will pay to access that content. Now, why does it matter? It's because if you think of digitization as a rising tide around your feet, it doesn't choose who it floods first. Just mm-hmm. music was first in that queue because of those properties. Right. You can look at a long list of professions today and realize that tide is rising around their ankles as well. And it doesn't stop. That's the point of the book. And in your pro- prologue, you quote Peter Drucker, who said, the customer rarely buys what the company thinks it's selling. And it's it goes to what they thought they were selling this physical CD to almost how the consumer is consuming it. And that flows into attention econo- economics and the shifting of focus of how something is sold to how it's consumed, right? Correct. And so how attention works, and you you have a whole chapter focused on attention, and you point out it's a limited resource, although we don't know exactly what the limits are. You make a lovely comparison with oil, which is is fun. Um, but any business, understanding how your product fits into attention is pretty important. You use a, a gin and tonic analogy, which I think is perfect. Um, could you share? <laughs> I was like, oh, I like this. Could you could you share that? It's amazing how well alcohol works. As an analogy <laughs> you, you remember it. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Uh... The connection between music's journey and how we get to attention is I think we're always fighting wars when it comes to disruption. And the key lesson for me with music is we won our war against piracy when we stopped fighting it. We built something that was better than stealing and the people came across. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, everybody's envious of what music's achieved, especially in professional journalism, especially the newspaper model. But then you look at the next war, which is attention. And I think the attention thing is fascinating because, you know, Firstly, if I wheel back to the chapter title, I call it paying attention, which as an English speaker, you know, we're used to that expression. School teachers say to kids, pay attention. We look at other languages, French, Spanish, you know, Swedish, it's offer, share or give. They don't say pay. They don't use the currency language of paying attention. They use a different expression. Well, and I, I actually wondered about that. And if you think human behavioral tendencies around attention are consistent across cultures or if they're actually nuanced and different is is how people approach attention culturally bounded in any way i i really do i think you're you're immediately and it's so encouraging to hear so it's one of the reasons why i admire your work so much is you've spotted something there which is i talk about the cultural differences in how fast you let go of the old vine and reach out to the new. You know, Sweden was early adopter. Germany was incredibly late. Right. I think there are other things you could do, just thinking aloud here, how do different cultures respond to a notification on their smartphone? Mm. Know, not to use any sweeping generalizations, but Spanish people might get around to that notification, mañana, mañana, whereas New York people want to have it yesterday. Just say it. Right. Just right. say it. So, and so, so how they how and of course I'm English speaking, so I'm going to say pay attention. So, 
if we're talking about attention merchants, and this is what we're in the business of, or many businesses are in the business of, how they understand the culture they're operating in is pretty important to understanding how that attention gets pulled, to use yeah. a different term, to try to get a different term in there. Um, I, I, I cut you off and, and we haven't gotten to gin and tonic. So let's do stay, do, do explain get gin and tonic. Let's get back to the bar. <laughs> My round. <laughs> um, yeah. So with gin and tonic, so I think there's two pieces to unpack here. One is just, is attention binary? That is, do you have it or do you not? Mm-hmm. Or is it stackable? That is, you can have many forms of attention competing for you at once. You can enjoy your music streaming service whilst enjoying Instagram. That is mm-hmm. gin and tonic. That is complementary. In fact, enjoying Instagram might help you enjoy music even more, right. which is drinking even more gin and tonic, which leaves you in a sorry state. So you can have substitutional versus complementary properties. But where I try and move that chapter into is, I mean, that's, that's building blocks. You know, to put a roof over this one, we need to discuss contestability. And that's where I think it's fascinating. Uh, the example I use is Netflix. And the show that I'm going to use here is Breaking Bad. And any credibility I have, I'm about to lose because I've only just started watching Breaking Bad. I'm sorry, but I know they're using Nokia phones and that's seasons one, two, and three. I'm on season three, episode six just now. But <laughs> Vince Gilligan is currently reading my book, which is a thrill. He loves it. And I thought if I'm going to have a meeting with Vince Gilligan, I might as well watch his product before I go into that meeting. So I'm going to desperately try to get to season six of Breaking Bad by the end of April. Anyway, I am allocating Netflix around about two hours every evening to catch up on my lack of social currency and friend. (laughs) Watch Breaking Bad. Then the point is, Netflix is getting the two primetime hours of my media attention between 9 and 11 at night. Nobody else gets in. So now we're not talking about gin and tonic. We're talking about different brands of gin. Netflix won, which means all the other brands of gin lost. Mm-hmm. Spotify lost. Apple lost. Katy Perry lost. Taylor Swift lost. Sony lost. Universal lost. Instagram lost. Facebook lost. Your show lost. <laughs> Everyone else loses. And then the twist to that is that means there's even less time for everyone else to compete for because it's only 24 hours in a day. So the doer pessimistic Scottish economist has to put the constraint on the situation, Uh which is time. Netflix wins, everyone else loses, everybody else still wants your attention. Some point Gabriella has to sleep, which means we have even less time to compete for. That's the contestability of attention playing out. And I give the in the book, I give a really good framework for thinking this through. I'm not saying it's the only framework. Bizarrely, it came from an Ofcom document. Well, and that I actually I I had a that document is fantastic. And I had a question about that if you because it was from a 2010 study. Which nobody has read, except well, myself and Daniel Eck. And we like to review this all the time in terms of this is the future of media. And it's buried away in page 94 of an Ofcom document that's sitting collecting dust. Do you think that if they redid, because there's a, for listeners, there's a, yeah. need to buy the book. There's a lovely chart and it it plots the tr- the, digi- the consumer's digital day and the trade-off between attention paid and importance of whatever they're paying attention to. And okay. do you think that if they were to replot it, it would be consistent? Is it is that somewhat stable and static or is that a shifting chart? I think the beauty of that buried away Ofcom example is that it will have changed. So 
you have to visualize this for your listeners. So imagine it is a simple trade-off. And on the x-axis, you have the relative importance of activities. On the y-axis, you have the relative attention given to those activities. And Ofcom beautifully gives you five activities, so I can remember them all. It's gaming, watching. So watching, playing, listening, communicating, and consuming. I think that's the five. And then you have circles to capture the population of the people doing this and where those circles sit on the chart. So simple example, when there's a human being on the other side of the attention trade, such as texting, I am texting Gabriella and she's going to text me back. Do we drink gin and tonic tonight? Yes, four bottles, please. Of course we do. That goes to the Northeast because it's relatively important. Gabriella's had a long day, she needs to drink gin. And we're going to pay a lot of attention because if I miss this date, we ain't going to be drinking. Right. At the southwest corner, that is not that important and not much attention given, was streaming music, uh, which what was fascinating. So this was 2010. Streaming was not such a big thing then. But I wonder whether the circles got bigger, more people are streaming music, but the position hasn't changed. Right, because it's stackable, because it's something you can do with something else. And and one of the things you say in your book, and I'm, I'm going to challenge you on it, was about eyes demand more than ears. And I would say, because I have, um, I'm a bit of a negative Nelly around Clubhouse and because I think it demands too much attention because if you're in a conversation and you're participating, that's that intimacy piece, that's that connection. So it's demanding a level of focus and it doesn't have any visual cues so I can be lazy about it. Love it. Um, so I don't think it, I think that that's actually a very high demand and I don't know if I people value it enough. Great. And I, I, I love hearing you walk through that example. Um, so it is demanding a lot of attention, but is it that important? So you can imagine where a clubhouse sits would be high up on the you know, attention given, but low down on the importance warranted. In the book, I give a really good example of that, of uh, a Netflix drama that we were all watching here in the UK around the time of lockdown last year, which is about you crazy Americans with tigers in captivity. Oh, everybody was watching that. (laughs) We watched that here. I saw some really interesting survey data there. At the time, Netflix stock price was going through the ceiling because everybody was seeing it as a stay-at-home stock, but people were spending more time watching Netflix but getting less utility from it. That Uh is... Binge watching a show about tigers in captivity does use up a lot of hours on the clock. Those hours are scarce, right? But do I actually come out thinking I could do a PhD in this topic? No, anything but. So back to Clubhouse, you could have that imbalance here. This is what makes the framework so fascinating is you can put it to work. Like Clubhouse demands a lot of time, um, attention, but it's not, relatively speaking, satisfying your needs because of lack of visual cues that would go along with it. I, I call Clubhouse the first social network for an AirPod generation. And I do, I'm a bit of a, a negative, what did you call it? A negative, negative Nelly. I, yeah. I don't say, I, I think that there are issues. I mean, for instance, you talk about Spotify and the immediacy of getting people what yeah. they want and the speed of that. And, you know, Netflix, when building their platform, had to have their tiles, those thumbnails, had to get people, had to tempt people to click them and then they had to deliver people what they wanted and they were satisfied with or else they dump out of the product. And I think Clubhouse has a problem in terms of alerting people to the content, in yeah. terms of making the content valuable, but it also demands a lot of time. And so I, I guess this framework, what's interesting is if we're in this pivoting world, this framework can be applied if you're an investor 
to think about what are you up against? How are people behaving? You know, because people talk about podcasting 2.0, this interactive podcasting, and it may seem like a good thing, but that's a pretty challenging bar to to cross. I guess that that was, you know, so be aware of what you're going for. It's not just it's social, it's audio, it's great. You know, I I think people again goes to understanding the, the human yeah. in there in the equation. I mean just with just with Netflix, I think the way for an investor to use that framework is to realize the bigger the Netflix bubble gets, the more people are subscribing to Netflix. And I would imagine that more people are subscribing to Netflix than watch any show on BBC or ITV here in the UK now. It's a big bubble. Mm. So, But the more it moves northeast, the more it captures more attention and is deemed more important. Let's say Netflix crash it on factual documentaries that are really relevant and timely. So mm. events happen and Netflix is able to documentary before CNN. Mm-hmm. The more they move in that northeast trajectory, the more they push everything else southwest. Oh, interesting. That's the way for an investor or even somebody in marketing to use that framework is to understand that as these bubbles grow and shrink, they're also moving around the chart and perhaps Netflix moves up, leading to Instagram moving down. And that's a really good way to think about contestability. And if I can just sow that seed amongst an audience which the media is not known for their attention span, it's just... It's not about scarcity, it's about contestability. How somebody's gain can be someone else's pain. That's that's the seed I need to see. Well, right. But and that depending on what you're doing, that you're with music, that's not an issue. So understanding again, understanding how people are consuming your product, whether or not it that contestable or not. That that's that's so interesting. One of the things that was also interesting. I had a question about was you talk about Spotify and you mentioned this earlier in our conversation about making the piracy experience even easier and better. So people were more willing to go to Spotify than to pirate. And so it was about, you know, frictionless, instantaneous, easy, easy, easy for the consumer. But then later on, when we're talking about TikTok, which is forcing users users to periodically engage and to swipe to see the next video. Why is that additional bit of effort, of friction, beneficial? And is that something that people need to be gauging? Like when to pop in a little irritant is actually not a bad thing. It's a great question. So this is where I learned from the culture of gaming. And there's an awful lot we can learn from the culture of gaming. And if I deal some skepticism here, like gaming could be seen as niche, a bit nerdy, a bit geeky, wrong. Gaming, it works off human behavior. So it's actually... And for me, it's a microcosm of how do you protect the future of media? Look at what gaming is doing and scale it. That's mm-hmm. my nutshell. So the, uh, throughout the book, I just the book was just like a journey in me and speaking to the very, very best people in gaming uh, across the world and learning from their experience. Now, the concept of flow tells you why games are so addictive. If I take the game Animal Crossing, which was launched pretty much a year ago to the day, so the average time spent listening to music is pretty much constant since 2009 when I first set up on Spotify, an hour and 48 minutes. Commute to work, commute back home, some downtime, uh, maybe a lunch break listen as well. It doesn't change. Mm-hmm. The average duration, that is constant duration of people playing Animal Crossing, the mean was nine hours. People were forgetting to eat. <laughs> so why? Why? And then you look at TikTok, you know, like... 
nephew, you know, he goes to sleep watching TikTok, like right. literally lies in bed horizontally watching TikTok. It's getting a bit worrying. Mm. And I think if you use the theory of flow, which is balancing the, the entertainment value with a little bit of friction mm-hmm. in there, can make all the difference. Gaming is all about trying to aspire to get into the next level. Make it hard, but not too hard to know that you can get there. It'll just need that bit more effort to get there. It's interesting when you apply that to the success of TikTok, which is when you watch Netflix on your sofa with Pringles and gin and tonic, obviously, <laughs> you don't actually have to do anything to move on to season three, episode eight of Breaking Bad, which is what I have to do tonight to catch up with everyone else and plan it out. Although we'll say, are you still watching? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't to me and i'm trying to burn my midnight oil really well you're not you're clearly not binging enough that's all i can say <laughs> but with tiktok you do actually have to have some form of interaction with the platform to move forward uh, now, why might tiktok win and netflix lose we just put it as a zero-sum game here is because tiktok's cracked flow theory and Netflix hasn't. They haven't introduced enough friction into it. They've made it too easy, too passive. They haven't asked you to engage. And I think that's an interesting concept. And you are seeing video streaming platforms begin to play around with flow theory in terms of thumbs up, social watching. Oh, and- I see. So that th- I was thinking, well, how could you do it that wouldn't annoy me as the viewer who has gotten familiar with certain ways, you know, that yeah. change is uncomfortable, I don't like when the grocery store rearranges the aisles. I don't like when the play button moves. <laughs> just, you know, I like, I like, I'm a habitual person, but I'm also old. So there's that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about attention because I want to talk about big data. Cause I think that's actually my favorite chapter in your book. So, so let's. Um, it's fun to write that one. I love that one. It's like got two of my most. I got to let rip in that one, which is oh, nice. it's it's awesome. But before we get to that, I do want to talk about a crowd, and I want to talk about Megan Trainer's hit, all about that base, and and how it turned a lot of the rules on its head, and how you figured it out. And um, can you can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I can't talk about that particular case study without citing my dear friend Emily French Blake who is a workaholic in Spotify, like we'd work day in, day out. When we announced that we had launched across Latin America, which nobody expected us to do so quickly, I think, you know, her and one of her colleagues in legal can take pretty much all the credit. Like they, she just worked and worked and worked. And in this example, you know, long story short, I published a case study in late 2014 about, you know, Megan Trainers all about that base. It's a fascinating story of, She'd entered the UK singles chart without actually being for sale. Truth be told, what happened was the record label accidentally released onto Spotify three weeks too early. So it was on Spotify's platform. Spotify was now influencing the charts for the first time, which was very hard for the industry to get its head around. And because the momentum was so big on Spotify, obviously without any promotional intent, it had gone into the top 40. So this headline came out, which is, Megan Trainor breaks into the top 40 without being on sale. And it's like, huh? Crazy. Beautiful headline to pull people's attention in. Regardless of how geeky you are, music metrics, you cannot get into the charts without being for sale. She did. So I did the case study, and then I flipped across the pond across the Atlantic to look at the American story, which was the order of events to which this sleeper hit, that is, it was dropped and took two or three months to gather momentum, became a hit. And the first thing that happened in America was Shazam Tech's. After Shazam, we saw streams. After right. streams, we saw sales. And long after that, we saw radio. Right, which doesn't make sense because you say, well, how do you Shazam something if it's not playing on the radio? 
the traditional order of events is radio first, Shazam second, sales third. Right. Has been that way for the best part of a decade. Now, we were staring, and this is obviously more than five years ago, at a model which went Shazam first, stream second, radio third. How do you square it? So we published a case study. It was picked up across America, picked up heavily amongst the radio audience in America, I have to say as well. Lots of big consultant names in the radio industry were discussing it on their own private channels. But for a year after, people kept saying to me, well, where did the text come from? And I'm sitting there like a douchebag, I think we call it. <laughs> which is on my shoulder saying, I don't know, I just published a case study. Come on, who's tagging? How did the tagging happen? Roll forward a year, I'm leaving the office late at night, and when there's like two or three people wrapping up different time zones left at Spotify's London base, and I pass by Emily's desk and say, you know, don't work too late, Emily, as I head for the lift. And she says, Paigey, come here. You've got to see this. And pulls me by her desk. And she'd just been working in Seattle, clearly working in Seattle time zones, catching up on meetings. She'd been working with Starbucks. She said, Starbucks are fascinated with your Megan Trainer case study. I said, why? It's got Jack SHIT to do with them. Mm. No, no, no. Look at this. Look at this. And she put forward the case that Starbucks was the biggest radio station in America. Nonsense. Starbucks sells coffee. And in my opinion, not particularly good coffee. It Burned coffee. <laughs> okay. And then she just laid out the numbers. Like the number of Starbucks stalls in America, the amount of people that go there, the dwell timers you queue, order, wait, and slurp your morning joe, I think you call it. Yeah. We're talking here about 20, 30 million people in America will pass through Starbucks. Uh. I come from a country of 5 million. We're talking about four times, five times the population of Scotland is in Starbucks at some point in the given day. She said they are convinced the tax came from Starbucks. Hmm. And the penny dropped. A crowd is a crowd is a crowd wherever it can be drawn. And you might have radio pluggers that plug radio, but that's moving last these days. Hmm. You might have playlist pluggers that plug streaming companies, but that wasn't moving first in this instance. So we went back to Shazam and we said, oh, we're now being told that Starbucks was the source of the tags. Can you do any analysis on the tagging? And we looked at the time of day of those tags across the four time zones in the United States, and it was between 7.30 and 10.30 in the morning. The exact time. Coffee queue. <laughs> Correlation, causation, locked. Right. So how many people think about drawing a crowd in Starbucks? Starbucks doesn't draw crowds. They, they draw a crowd of 20 million people every morning. That's a crowd. Do not ignore where crowds are drawn. Right. Well, and think different. Think outside of the way you've usually been thinking about things. And that certainly is, is part of your later discussion in your book. Well, I want to cover three things before we finish up. And we've got, you know, three minutes. So we've got a minute per item. <laughs> and uh, the Let's first is <laughs> quantification bias and thick data. So let's... Um, I and I think they're I think they're related. So if we can talk about those two things, that would be great. Okay, so quantification bias simply says we have this bias towards what we can measure, what we can put into a tableau dashboard, and we ignore what we can't. And what we're ignoring is not irrelevant. In fact, it could be more relevant than what you can measure. Um, Starbucks, about, for instance. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, do we measure the crowds that are in Starbucks? No, but do we know they exist? Yes. Should we be thinking about what Starbucks people are listening to while they queue for their coffee? We've just learned a lesson. Absolutely. Right. Uh, I'll give you another one, which is you know, think about how the relevance of what we were on just now, Zoom, to the American British consumer in the past fourteen months, massive. Where does that sit in government accounts? Where does that sit in the gross domestic product? Is it even there? Right. What most is often what's measured least. So 
that chapter is where, as a contrarian economist, I really challenged what people are claiming with big data, the Kool-Aid issue. And I was introduced to the work of Tricia Wang, who stood on stage at a conference, a behavioral economics conference I went to, and basically shook seven shades of brown stuff out of everybody in the audience and hammered home this point about thick data, which is just listen to the consumer. You know, stop looking at your dashboard, start talking to your consumer. At Spotify, I think I was one of the very few people who bothered to go to the customer support offices in Cambridge and sit with them. You know, mm-hmm. there was no harm. How many people who claim to understand consumer data know where their customer support office is? Uh, I, exactly. The survey, like, do you actually know where they're located? No, I think they're over there somewhere. Um, so I went there and just the lessons that you learn from there, one very quick one, and I know we're tight on time, but one very quick one, which I think your audience will appreciate. We launched Discover Weekly around about the summer of 2015. A year later, we launched Family Plan, which was a risk for our service. It was a response to Apple's product um, that you could have downsizing, essentially. You could have four people paying 40 bucks a month for Spotify, and you could cannibalize that down to 15 because they're all going to endorse a family plan. So it was a, a gamble, a, a strategic risk to the business, but we had to put it out there. A great offer as well. And we started getting these common complaints coming into customer support, which was, why is Frozen's Let It Go? My Discover Weekly. <laughs> <laughs> and the response that we gave was, do you happen to have daughters? And they would say, three of them. Would you there like that? So nobody messes with your algorithm. I'll take it right away. Right. That's common sense today in 2021. But back then, when nobody had cracked algorithmic curation at scale. This is you know, revolutionary thinking. And you know, what you saw there was a great example of customization, Discover Weekly, driving commerce family plan, and commerce family plan driving customization Discover Weekly is a feedback effect. None of this appears in the Tableau dashboard. I want to be absolutely clear. Exactly. It doesn't show up in dashboards. It shows up by listening, interacting, and conversing with customers, something that most data scientists have forgotten about. Preach. Yes. The very last thing is you created a metaphor, which then, you know, you put in your conclusion and that actually creates a wonderful framework for how people who are reading your book and understand themselves can then understand how their behaviors in these different uh, principles are going to manifest. And you talk about builders and farmers. And can you just say what that is? The motivation there was I am quite frankly fed up with business books which claim here's one rule that will change everybody's life. And to be clear, there is no one rule and everybody is different. So go get a job in a shoe shop. You're not requested here anymore. That line of thinking is redundant and we've had too much of it. Secondly, a hat tip to Adam Grant, whose work has really influenced me. He keeps it simple, digestible, very humble and honorable person as well. Like what he's trying to do is help people work together better. And I applaud that. And it was great to get his endorsement for my book as well. So your backstory here was on the run up to Spotify going public, I was asked by an early investor, what's the madhouse like at the moment? And this person smokes cigarettes fast, drinks coffee even faster, and wants answers even faster than that. So I came up with this quip, which was to say, the builders are leaving, and the farmers are coming in. That is, the people who make something out of nothing and scale the impossible, they're all leaving the company now, often to go back down to the bottom and start a new startup. And the farmers, the people who have operations and compliance and regulations and all this, they're wading in, and it's quite an awkward mix. 
Three months later, he comes back to me and says, your expression's caught on. I was like, what do you mean? What expression? He said, builders and farmers. You beautifully capture where in the lifespan of a tech company you belong because you don't belong there forever. And that's why I thought, if I ever write this book, I know what I'm going to do. A, I'm going to attack this one rule that changes all of our lives nonsense. And two, give a taxonomy of who you might be in the lifespan of a tech company so you can work out how to apply these eight principles differently. And it's fascinating to think about after Spotify went public, you had career development frameworks. For the builders, that was like a foreign language. Mm-hmm. I mean, in work, right. problems solving, solve them yesterday. Right. They had framework business. Great news for farmers, uncomfortable news for builders. And I mean, there's a thousand examples of seeing that in practice, but hopefully that resonates with your listeners because uh, we all face it. And it's just for that simple reason that that investor friend told me, which is you don't belong in a tech company forever. There's a point where you have to jump on and a point where you have to jump off. Right. And it's the challenge is knowing when, and also that there isn't a being one or the other isn't pejorative, that, that they each do something really well and very important and they're different. And that's a, that, that difference actually breeds the long-term success that you need. There, there comes a time when actually to be successful, the builders need to go and the farmers need to come in or else it won't, it won't work. Um, So maybe a timely, Examples is very quickly here in the UK. We've had Deliveroo have an idea. Oh, yes. That's been, that's um, been one heck of a public offering. Back <laughs> that horse, which had three white legs, but still. Um, yeah. The, and the example I use in the book is to think about Uber. Uber makes a profit when they drive Gabriella home after drinking too much gin and tonic safely, mm. have the controls in place, the farmers go. Go, the builders. Um, but they lose money when they deliver Gabriella's meal to her house right. because the builders are working at Uber Eats and the farmers are running Uber Lifts. So there's a really beautiful example for the reader to work with there, which is to think of Uber as having both in different parts of its business. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I really enjoyed your book. The podcast webpage will have a click to purchase link, and I highly recommend that everybody click and purchase. So thank you. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Really grateful for this opportunity. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next, and I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open, and of course, all of you, the members of our audience. Thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.